There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, The Origin of Wexford Opera Festival. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. In 1951, the first Wexford Opera took place in a small venue in the middle of Wexford Town. And what started out to be an informal gathering of friends listening to gramophone music developed into one of Europe's leading classical music events. I was very fortunate to have travelled down to Wexford in 2008 and spent many weeks meeting the people who were involved from the very beginning. And that was over 70 years ago. In 1950, Dr. Tom Wells started an opera study circle. Last November, we tried to form an opera study circle here. Dr. Tom Welsh was the driving force behind getting it started. And my good friend, Mr. Compton McKenzie, came and gave us an inaugural address. Well, the opera st- circle has gone on quite well since, but it is really just a means to an artistic end. But what we have in mind is the formation of a musical festival, which we hope, it's very much in the air at the moment, but we hope that by next, say, October or November, that for some four or five days we will have a musical festival running here in the town. Judy Sennett remembers those early days and Tom recalling how an opera festival like this in Wexford would brighten the town up. 19th century theatre was here. It had been turned into a cinema during the war, but it was back to being a, a theatre, a bit battered. But still, they ran things there. Anu McMaster and people used to come to Wexford to the theatre. And Tom himself said he always had this fascination, in particular for the light in the theatre, because, as he said, Wexford was a dull town. Now, we're talking about the 40s, say. Um, In his own three-storey house, as he said, there was gas on the first two storeys and candles up on top when you were going to bed. There weren't lights, there weren't bright street lights, there weren't bright shop lights, but in the theatre there was light, and he said that sort of drew him. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a moth, but it, it, to him that was a form of glamour and excitement. And when Dr Tom Welch really needed uh, the local business people in Wexford to come behind him, he wasn't disappointed. 
He was backed and and wonderfully supported by a little cohort of, of friends who were equally interested in doing this. They wouldn't have had the same expertise as he had in selecting singers and operas and so on, but they were in there to back him. Eugene McCarthy, the owner of White's Hotel, just did everything, provided office space, booking office space, um, looked after singers, just did all that end of things. Um, Dr. Des French was just as musical as Dr. Tom Welsh. He was medical doctor in Rosslare. He would come in puffing his pipe nice and quietly when Dr. Tom would pace up and down in agitation and Des would quietly suggest, from mainly from a musical point of view. There, were other, there was another medical doctor, Dr. Liddy, whose daughter still lives in Wexford, and he, again, would provide advice and backing. And then the businessmen in the town rode in behind that. They raked up the money, they lent transport, they went all over the county encouraging people to become members of the festival. So there was this combination of, of professional and musical knowledge and um, businessmen backing it and getting the support. And then at the level of the physical work that mm-hmm. was done, you had great local participation. But Tom Welsh was the man with the vision and he and he pursued that. And his, his enthusiasm and, and dedication rubbed off on everybody else. Murray Fain, a native of Wexford, and spent many years involved in the opera festival, was there from the very beginning and recalls what happened. I remember him saying the night we were there, you know, now, look yeah, you're very welcome to become members of this, but I have to tell you now that no matter what is discussed within these walls, has never to be mentioned outside to anyone. This is completely within these walls. It is private. And I said to myself, I wonder would I had better go because I mean, if I said anything out of turn, I might be blamed. So after the meeting, anyway, we were all asked to come down to the bar and have a drink. And we were there for a while. And the next thing I could hear the colonel at the top of his voice and some other member of the recital of the council discussing the matters at the tops of their voices. And I said, oh, I don't think I'd better continue joining this because if anything leaks out, we'd be blamed. And it's their, their responsible by talking, you know. During the opera study circle, Dr. Tom used to have people visiting. I remember one tenor came called Tano Ferrandinos. He gave a concert at one stage uh, in the Theatre Royal. And then we had Father Sidney McCune, who in, 19, in the early 1951, on January the 30, 21st, he gave a recital in the Abbey Cinema with and with Morony Scully. She was a very famous soprano who sang uh, ballads, you know, and Kitty O'Callaghan was the accompanist. And that was a great event, I remember Particularly, we used to autograph Hunt in those days as well, you know. And uh, then uh, it got to the stage when Dr. Tom became immersed in setting up the festival. And we had a meeting in the theatre and all the study circle members and the choir people from the two choirs, the bands, the voluntary workers that used to work on the productions of the light opera, all were at a big meeting in the theatre 
and he took us he he told us what he intended to do and he wanted he said he wanted lots of help from us all uh and a lot of voluntary workers and we were all to meet at regular intervals during the setting up of the whole thing the thing about it was you see that it was hugely courageous and very adventurous because as i said um there was no uh, history of uh, uh, music or opera in Wexford Town as such. Peter Maguire was a very close friend of Dr. Tom Welsh, and here he recalls the difficulties in getting the people to go to the opera. Um, but Tom Walsh uh, had a, a belief that you could create an interest in good music, in good opera, and um, it was he who uh, ignited other people's enthusiasm. And uh, they put together a, a, a high-class cast for the opera. Now, I'm not sure about this, but I think in that first year, if not the first year, the second or third year, he engaged a tenor from uh, Italy, uh, Nicola Monti, M-O-N-T-I, I think it was he had the most magical voice. He was just absolutely superb. And he was young, and he was very good-looking. And he created a sensation amongst the ladies in Wexford. And uh, I think Tom Walsh told me at the time that he was paid £100 for the festival, for the whole week as it was at that time. And that was big money. And um, that... First festival, the ticket sales, well, now, they didn't sell out like a Neil Diamond concert or anything. In fact, uh, Tom Walsh himself and Eugene McCarthy, maybe Mr. Dwyer, had to go off outside the county of Wexford to try and get people to buy tickets to go to the opera that first um, year and uh, beg people to come, look, support this. We can't have these good stars coming over and performing in Wexford unless the theatre is full, so you'll have to buy tickets. I mean, that's what happened. That actually happened that first year. Charlotte Henrik lived right beside the Theatre Isle, and she remembers the excitement on the street when the opera was over. And coming out of the festival at night time and all, you know, it, the, the town would be real full of people walking at all hours. And every pub door would be open and they'd be all singing. They'd walk up and down and this is where I'm, I'm telling you, these group of poor lads used to sing. And the harmony was gorgeous now. Did you know the woman that used to make the costumes for the opera? Yeah. Mrs. Mrs. Um, Dora Pettit. Dora Pettit. Dora, Dora Pettit. Yeah. Dory, yeah. She was very good oh, at, she at was making lovely. the... She was great at costumes. So she made a costume from one of the one of the women that didn't like the, the one that came, and she turned around and made a, a, a beautiful one for her. She was delighted with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was good. But she was she was dedicated, very dedicated. Oh, to very getting, dedicated. Yeah. She was at the machine there all the time. Yeah, yeah. And she handed you your costume, you know. I said, "Give me a nice one." <laughs> <laughs> oh, there were beautiful costumes. Annie Murphy also lived all her life in the town of Wexford and from a young age she was involved in the opera. When, when, the, when, the, when I tell you, the people of Wexford didn't know, any more than I did, didn't know what was happening. 
when I lived in the, as I told you in High Street, and we used to see all the decorations and all the excitement going on, and then we saw the orchestra going in, and of course we were all out looking to see what was happening, going up to the door and having to look in and all, and we discovered then what it was. That was the, and we never heard tell it before, didn't know what it was going to do, but it was only going to be one year, like, you see, and then being held, you see, in High Street, you know, in the small theatre, oil, it must be the smallest in the world. And yet it put on so elaborate, big operas. No one would believe that they were coming to a, a theatre in a side street. In a very, do you ever go over that way? Oh, no? yes, yes, yes. a very narrow street. Mm. And what went to way? I, I was living actually in the flat, not too far from the theatre, the first year that it opened. And it was all torn and thrown and props and people going in with flowers. And sure, we didn't know what was after happening. It mushroomed. But you would have never experienced an opera in your life before. No. You would never have seen it. No, or... never. Yeah. Never. <laughs> I never so I never realised that I'd be singing on the stage with all the all the stars. And yeah. they're all so grand to meet him. Hugo Benelli and Delamancus, he was a he was a huge big man. And the tenor was Nikolai Monte. Oh, he was a beautiful tenor. Beautiful tenor he was. And Delamancus now was the bass. And he had a huge big frame. So he was able to Zing bass, he was lovely. We got, we met them all. There's no such thing like as not mixing with the chorus. They were very friendly, yeah. very very friendly. We made sure that they, that they mixed amongst us. I I felt the very same. There was the Queen of England with all her crown jewels. <laughs> 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 oh, I did. I felt special. I thought it was someone important, and I was there, and I was on the international stage, as they call it now. Because it is international, it's after moving so quick, you know, it's after mushrooming up, which is great. What was astounding about Wexford was that here was a theatre built in 1830, a very attractive little theatre on its own, but was devoid of so many technical things. Maureen Furlong was involved in fundraising. And how people worked. I mean, you can't believe that the costumes were made underneath the stage. The sets were made underneath the stage. The painting was done on stage. And I always felt that this took almost too much energy out of people. And when I was asked to be chairman of the theatre committee, uh, I wasn't, uh, I was a bit part of the fundraising, but not to some extent. And money was found. And we built the whole extra left-hand side of the theatre. And that gave room for dressing rooms, for uh, a green room, for various other rooms. And what I found absolutely extraordinary about that was that the whole atmosphere backstage changed. John and Nancy Sherwood were staunch supporters of the Opera Festival. John held the position of usher from 1951 to 1956. A lot of people would have thought it was madness uh, at local level. A lot of people, where are they going to bring in these things, you see? Because Tom Welsh used to go off and um, he'd go to the continent and he'd go to operas. He, had, he was an opera fan on the continent as well. And he picked up a lot of these by so doing. Um, another guy who was involved in the selection of them was Donny Potter, who oh, yes. now lives down in Cairn. He's a retired Don, Donnie and Maura. Now he, he would was, have been big in the Dublin Grand Opera Society. Huh? He was he involved in the, in, yeah, in the Dublin. Grand Opera in Dublin, but he used to do a lot of uh, 
research for them as well. But uh, that was the um, the whole reason, if you like, for the Wexford Festival, and still is, is to produce operas that are totally unheard off off the beaten track. Uh, we've never had things. Mm. We've, I don't think we've ever had Carmen or. La Traviata or any of these. We've never had these. You can get those anywhere. And some of these performers actually made their name here in Wexford. Oh, they did. Yeah, Yeah. Nicola Monte Mm -hmm. was one. um, Morella Freyne. Morella Freyne. She was another one. Um, Oh, they made the the big time out of here. I remember the first guy in... Dalamangus. He was a bass. Yeah, he was a bass. He He was in... Oh, my God. He was a Greek. Yeah. Just going back to 1951, when the first uh, opera festival started here in the town, mm-hmm. were you involved? Yes, um, to uh, some extent I was. I was asked to be a country member to try to whip up enthusiasm for starting uh, opera in Wexford by Dr Walsh. Helen Screen from Butlerstown Castle. Who uh, we were friendly with. And um, so I went around the kind of uh, Protestant gentry, shall I say? I don't know how else to describe them, to see if they would be interested in promoting it and contributing something towards it. Uh, There wasn't very much response, um, with one exception. David Price, he was enthusiastic right from the start, and he said, oh, yes, that's a great idea. Um, I wasn't uh, able to help very much. I wrote the programme notes, I think, for the first opera. And I ran a small exhibition of Irish silver, which took place in White's Hotel. And we didn't even have um, a a keeper on the door. Uh, In those days, you expected everyone to be honest. Now, I mean, considering the value of some of the things that were exhibited, by all given by private people just for the duration of the opera. Well, I mean, you'd have a policeman there 24 hours a day on it, but um, it was just in a room in whites. It was uh, very delightful, really. Martin McCullough, who was connected to the McCullough Pickett musical business in Dublin, was approached by Tom Welsh in the 1950s to set up a link between Dublin and Wexford by organising an opera train. Uh, Dr Tom Walsh came to see me uh, early in 1952 to develop the Dublin link. Obviously he wanted more and more patrons of the festival coming from Dublin, where the bulk of them would have come anyway. So he wanted um, a centre or an office in Dublin that would Mm. manage and handle the affairs of Wexford. And I was only too glad to do that. And some years later, he and I devised the idea of um, organising an opera train, which uh, attracted 120 people, I think, going down by train in evening dress, dinner on board the train, bust from the station where they were met by a brass band conducted by the conductor of the opera to uh, transport them to the the theatre. They saw the opera... They came back to the train and they got a supper in the train and they came home in the morning. And that was a thundering success, so much so that we put on a second train. And that operated for quite a number of years, right up to the 
70s? Well, as transport officer, you just got your orders to get to the airport and collect artists and bring them back to the town. Jimmy O'Connor was involved in the opera festival from the very beginning. And it was rather funny. Um, They never knew exactly where they were going to end up (laughs) coming down the windy country roads. And we always said it was one of the reasons why they never escaped because Tom was determined that every opera would be well rehearsed and each artist had to stay in the town for at least a fortnight for rehearsals before the performance took place. And here is Jimmy O'Connor's fondest memory of those early days when they had no money. We, we could never afford backups as all the big opera houses in Europe have. And I can remember an occasion when a very distinguished Italian artist got a throat infection and couldn't perform the role. And fortunately, we had a Wexford person who was very musical and knew the role But this Italian artist had fallen ill so quickly that there was no time to rehearse. So she mimed on the stage and the Wexford person, using a score at the side, sang the role. Dr. Jim Liddy worked very closely with Dr. Tom Welsh and Dr. Des French in organising and promoting the first opera festival. Dr. Nora Liddy, the daughter of Dr. Jim, recalls here how desperately hard everybody worked and voluntary. The ordinary person on the street was slaving away in the background, and I mean slaving. They worked desperately hard. Scenery, costumes, lights, sound... You know, even trying to paint the place and all that. I mean, people work desperately hard. And that's all gone now, which is... Well, it's not all gone. There are some people behind stage even at the minute, but it's not as it was. And you see, the opera had no choice, really, I suppose, but to go more professional, like the local chorus and so on. And this is a shame, but I suppose it has to be. How do you strike that balance? I don't know. When did that start to happen? It started to happen about, oh... In the late seventies, eighties, I guess. Yeah, early eighties. Uh, they began to audition for the chorus, and you know, this wasn't. It didn't go down well. On the other hand, I mean, people understood that it had to become more professional. It was getting too big. Do you know what I mean? And then they dropped the forum. They dropped the um, the cinema. And uh, they went more for the opera scenes, which are extremely popular and very good, no doubt about it. He retired in, in the 19... Was it 66 or, uh, or so uh, around that yes, time? Yes, he stopped being the artistic director, yeah. Mm. yeah. Was, was there some reason for him at that stage retiring? I mean, he, he was still a young man. He was still... I mean, there was no reason for him. He got fed up with it because people wouldn't do what they were told. I think that's... A summary now of a long and detailed thing, but you know, people began to be uncooperative with Tom, 
and uh, he didn't like that. And he said, to hell with it. And just walked out. Yeah, and no amount of pleading would... People were surprised, were they? Oh, yeah. 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 Great speculation about all that. Yeah. Was it difficult to continue in the, year, the years that followed? Yes. Well, all sorts of people came in, like uh, oh, gee, Brian Dickey and people like that. And um, by that time, we were getting a lot of help from the BBC. I must particularly mention Hugh Weldon, who was a magnificent man and a great intellectual. And I see, about this time I went to college and I lost a bit of track and my father began to opt out then as well because they were expected to put in a lot of money and he didn't have it. Hmm. What about the input that uh, Radio Erin had? Hmm. Was that in your uh, memory? Norris Davidson and... Um, there were, yes, Morris Gorham is the man I'm trying to think of. Yeah, he was huge. He was huge and very much down here and very much supporting everybody and chivying people along and that, you know. He was good. Jim Golden participated in the festival as a voluntary helper for many years, but left when Dr Tom Welch resigned in 1965. But you know, of course, that Tom, uh, he was involved with the festival for 15 years. Why did he retire so quickly? He never spoke about it. Um, He just simply put down the shutters, as you've probably been told by others. It's a total and absolute and complete cut-off. And he had all the records uh, of the opera, and he would have no part or involvement whatsoever in the festival the year after he left, and never did again. His only involvement in the festival subsequent years was to go as a, an ordinary uh, opera, opera fan. And in fact, he didn't go to it for a number of years and he took a job in the um, Opera Society or whatever they call it in Belfast for a number of years after he left the Wexford Festival. Um, but being absolutely honest with you now, I have very friendly and intimate letters from him, a number of them, And even with that friendship, he never, ever mentioned why he had left. Some years later, Jim Golden returned to take up a position in the box office and became manager and was appointed to a position on the Opera Council. Everything else going on outside the opera then, uh, it, it, it all, you know, was all there to create this wonderful festival that uh, that's put on every year. Yeah, of course, because if you just have three operas going on and people going to them and going home about their business, well, that's not a festival. It's a season of opera. But what was in Wexford, and still is, I suppose, in a way, is that the festival goes out into the town and you have these... You see, the official festival has... The operas are now maybe up to 40 different recitals at different times during the day. But then you have all these fringe events which give something for everybody to do. You have um, plenty of art exhibitions, some by local artists. And the big thing about it is that 
locals get a chance to show their skills. I mean, there are so many different... If you look, think back over the years at the various things that were in it, like crab fishing on the Keys, there's always a festival hurling match. There used to be a, a festival cup. I don't know if it's still there. Boat races, fishing, angling competitions. And then you have all the societies that did things like the wealth of talent or skills that are in the town are displayed, like the Wexford, the Cine Club, who have made films of um, peripheral things to do with the festival, you know? Like um, The Rose That Bloomed was done by Declan Lowney, I think, whose name you now see on television as a, mm-hmm. a thing. When he was, I think he was only a school boy at the time. It was the 21st Wexford Festival, the the Rose That Bloomed would be the first festival was the Rose of Castile, was the one opera. We've come to the end of this week's podcast. You have been listening to the voices of people who were all involved in the origin of the Wexford Opera Festival. And it all happened in 2008 when we were asked to go to Wexford to talk to the people of the town who had memories of the festival and it took a long time but it was a worthwhile project because many of those people now have passed away but their stories and memories live on and it was a great pleasure to understand better what the festival meant to the people of Wexford and It was a project that I really enjoyed doing. So if you would like to access any of the interviews, all of 65 interviews, they're now available on our website. And you can access those by going to irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.